0: All right, we're in Acts chapter 20. I know I'm camping here a long time, <laughs> but it, I can't. There's one. It's the most important passage, really, um, about church leadership, which is such a crying need for understanding this in the church today. So, I'm going to camp here, and you're just going to have to put up with me. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. So today, um, I just want to warn you, I'm going to read a lot of scriptures. We're going to be jumping around a lot. That makes it tricky on a couple of points. One is if you don't know your way around the Bible, you'll feel like you get lost. You can just listen. Also, if you have a different translation and I'm reading passage after passage after passage, you're, you're trying to figure out what it means just listen as well because I've got a New American Standard 1995 version and you might have something totally different so it might just be hard to keep up you know, l- trying to put all the words together so you can just listen if you jot down what I read you you can go back later and, and write it down too you can do whatever you want but I'm just warning you <laughs> Okay. so that said let me pray and get us going Father we're approaching your word again in this marvelous portion of the book of Acts where Paul gives his final farewell to the leaders that he raised up And the words for them are the words for our generation for sure, but it's true in all times in church history. So we ask you to give us special wisdom as we look at this and uh, accept what you have to say for for your church and how it's to be run and the kind of people that are to shepherd it. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this together in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're sort of working our way into this speech that Paul gives. And um, when Paul began speaking to the Ephesian elders, um, for the last time he's going to do that face to face, his first words recorded by Luke, we talked about it earlier in verse 18, he says, You yourselves know. You yourselves know. And then he's going to talk about himself. you yourselves know what I was like when I was with you. That's what he's saying. He's using himself as an example. Mainly what he does is remind them of the leader that he was among them for over three years. And you can learn really important things in a, in a class, you know, if you go take a class in the Bible or something. But there's, there is important head knowledge. I mean, you have to have that. You have to come to grips with God's revelation in scripture and you have to labor to understand it and there's a lot to that but nothing compares to to seeing and interacting with the essence of a Christian walk, a, a person's walk lived out day by day over an extended period of time where you get to watch them and be a part of them. So both of those things are really important. Paul wasn't perfect. Nobody is on this side of heaven. But he did live the things he taught. With great consistency. And he was a model. And he's a model for us as well. So he's not boasting about anything. Uh, He's just laying out. A a mature Christian life. And a leader's life. And they need to pay attention to that. So uh, Paul. One of his greatest strengths. Was that he was able to conquer himself. One of the hardest things for anybody to do. Is to conquer themselves. That's one of the lost realities of time. Um, We we live in a culture that doesn't teach that much anymore. You know it's kind of a rare quality but that's really important. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 16, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Yeah it's kind of a cool thing if you go out there and go to war and capture a city but if you can rule yourself that's a greater thing. It's a harder thing to do actually is what he's saying. So Paul could govern himself. Why? Because he did not live for himself. That's the secret there. He lived for Jesus. And in verse 19 of Acts 20 when he talks about serving the Lord with all humility, with lowliness, he he did that and he modeled that. He subordinated himself to God's work and he lived to proclaim and magnify Jesus, not himself. And he describes how he did that here in all sorts of ways and we've been discussing those the last couple of weeks. First it was that heart attitude of a slave of Jesus which requires complete lowly mindedness. He calls it all humility in the translation I have. Nothing was about Paul for Paul that he did. And then he starts describing how he served God he didn't hold anything back he says he declared to them the whole purpose of God and then he mentions these two great truths we talked about last time essential truths and he solemnly testified to them verse 21 he solemnly testified to the gospel of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that's the gospel repent and believe put your faith in Jesus Christ that's foundational And then verse 24 he solemnly testified to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he's commending to them those two core truths that they can never compromise on those things and they have to maintain those things because there's always people, movements, uh, confused people, deliberately um, trying to corrupt people. There's all kinds of things going on to try to take those things away from the church. The simplicity of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the grace of God. Those are central doctrines. They have to be proclaimed and they have to never be let go of. They've got to be clung to with great tenacity. And Paul was the example. He was the model of the leader as a servant and he did it right. In our text today really starting at verse 28 he's turning away from himself now as the model that was kind of catching you up. And for a f- just a couple sentences here, he's going to address the Ephesian elders directly. So examples are beneficial, but now he's going to make sure they're applying it. Applying what they've learned from him and what they've seen in him. And he's telling them what all this means for them, so he commands them. There's two imperative verbs. What's that mean? That's a command. There's two imperatives in verse 28 through 31 here. And just like he did earlier, he's going to bracket this. If you were with us earlier, we talked about how verse 20 and verse 27 are, he kind of says the same thing about declaring the whole purpose of God. And then in the middle of all of that, He's giving a lot of other information. And it's the same here. Only here it's a command. Then a little bit of detail. And then another command. So he's kind of bracketing that detail with two, two commands. So the first command is in verse 28. Be on guard. And then verse 31. Be on the alert. See how those are obviously connected. And then he's saying something in between that's really important. So verse 28 is about being a shepherd. One of the main jobs of a shepherd is to protect. To protect the flock. He's a sentry. Real shepherds protect the sheep. That's what they do. That's how David actually learned to fight. By fighting off wild animals trying to kill his sheep. That's why he he was so good with a slingshot. But church shepherds, their job is to protect the flock. Not with a slingshot if possible. But with the truth. So Paul mentions two things to watch out for. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves. And then he says, and for all the flock. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Guard yourselves, guard the flock. We've been talking for two weeks now about how the shepherds have to watch themselves. And the key qualification for elders, for church shepherds in First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 is that they are above reproach. There should never be anything that can be said about them, at least that's true, that would be of a scandalous nature. Now nobody's perfect but we're talking about people really bringing a reproach upon Christ and the gospel by their behavior. And that is not to be true of a, of a, a leader of a church. He has to be above reproach ethically, morally, financially, in his personal interactions. He has to be a gentle person. And those are two things Paul mentions in verse 28 that there's two things here that kind of explain why this is so important. He says be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's kind of important. God has put you in this position. The Holy Spirit has put you in this position. And then he says to shepherd the church of God which he God purchased with his own blood. That's an amazing statement. That's, that's a heavy statement. Any church leader that isn't burdened by that is not fit to be a church leader that doesn't understand that the people he's, he's taken care of have been bought by the blood of God. So the Holy Spirit made that person an overseer. That that Greek word is episkopoi. You ever heard of a, the Episcopal Church? Um, that's got a that's more of a church structure word because they have bishops and a bishop sort of an overseer, and then you've got pastors and you've got deacons, all that stuff. Our church structure is different, but we understand, and I think it's totally biblical, that a, a, a pastor and an elder, a presbyteros, and an episkopoi, an overseer, are all the same office. They're exactly the same people. So there's just different words to describe different things that they do. So the, an overseer, an episkopoi, is, is the one who oversees the spiritual health of the congregation. That's his shepherding role. That's any elder in the church is that, an overseer. So that's a God-given role and the Spirit of God has assigned them to that position and when the church lays hands somebody and ordains them to that position, the Holy Spirit has done that and it's a sacred obligation that they have to serve the church. So their shepherding role is not just some earthly institution. You know people think the church is just some, it's like a club. Well it's not. It's not the Boy Scouts, it's not the Rotary Club, it's nothing like that. It's, a, it's God's institution. And the church of God has been purchased with his own blood. So the fellowship of the saints is, is a blood bought people and he has oversight to make sure that they're protected and taken care of and fed. So Christ endured the horrors of the crucifixion to redeem the people that the shepherd is overseeing and that's an incredible responsibility. They are Christ's flock. So the members of the flock are precious to, the, to God. He's their father and the Lord is saying to the elders take care of them. Take care of them. I don't think there's any more solemn way to say it than the way it's said there by Paul that the church was purchased with the blood of God. So be on guard for yourself, he says, and be on guard for them. The English Standard Version translate the word guard as pay close attention to and I think the New King James Version says take heed which are perfectly good translations are actually helpful. The word itself means to direct your mind. We, we, I think modern people would say focus, right? Focus. And that's, that's really the idea here. Focus on yourself and focus on the flock. Don't let things slip either in your life or your doctrine. For the sake of the father's children in Christ because he's made you responsible for them. It's easy to let things slip. It really is, it is easy. It's easy to lose focus. It happens in so many different ways to shepherds of the flock. They, get, they can be very distracted from this key task by all kinds of other things. Pastors people that we call pastors or elders and again biblically all elders or pastors are mutually and culturally we call pastors paid staff people paid elders and lay elders or we call them elders typically but Bible they're all the same all the same but it's it's easy to grow weary in the work over time and kind of just start going through the motions it's not hard to do that that's why so many pastors drop out of the ministry Their expectations aren't met and they start to see their ministry as a job that really isn't seeing the kind of, isn't going anywhere. They don't see the blessing of God that they expected and or maybe had dreams of or things like that. They had ministry dreams. They didn't pan out. They gave up a lot to do it and they can't see the fruit of their labor as they hoped it would be. And things start becoming really routine and it's really easy for that to happen. And then they just start going through the motions. Year after year they preach sermons on Sunday and they marry people, they bury people, and they start looking forward to retirement. If they could last that long. At one time they they really had hopes for the church to grow and they hope to keep the bills paid and all of that kind of stuff and they're studiously nice to people but that's just kind of becomes more formal and over time, the tired shepherd, he's, he's not excited anymore to see how God is going to work in people's lives. He doesn't really think that way anymore. And, and changed lives, he doesn't see that really happening in a significant way. and he, He's not a heretic or anything, but doctrine doesn't warm his heart anymore. The, the great truths don't warm his heart. He, he, uh, they don't pique his interest. He doesn't go chasing, oh, what would that be? What's that, what's that all about? In the scriptures, he's... It, it, He's just worn out and it's common. It's common. It's understandable too. It's also tragic because you can drift into sort of a malaise and you've got the blood bought people of God under your care. And so you can never get like that when that's the case. He's got to look to himself. Now there's an exactly opposite way to focus on yourself but in a completely wrong way. And um, that's, that's by focusing on yourself, for yourself. See Paul focused on himself to make sure he was a servant of the Lord. But sometimes you can, well I've met a few in my, my years, people that are in the ministry focused on themselves for themselves primarily. That's the desire to be someone. to to gain notoriety and influence and longing for prestige in the eyes of the church. You know the church at large. They're always looking for a way to expand their horizons. His eye is not on himself as a slave. That's what Paul's eye was. Make sure he's a slave. It's not even on the church. The flock kind of becomes a means to an end for that kind of person. Lots of things pique his interest. Almost anything or any idea or anything somebody else is doing that he can use as a tool to help make him famous. That's how some people think. He's prone to manipulating people to build dreams about himself and what he wants to achieve in his life. It's really interesting to watch people like that. It's, uh, it's self-focused, not to make sure I'm being a slave, but for my own glory. That's a really dangerous place for anybody in ministry to be. The worst thing for him, in my opinion, is if he succeeds (laughs) in his wildest dream because then it just gets worse. And you see people crashing all the time that have gone to these great heights. Because they were in it for themselves they, or they somewhere they got lost and started focusing on themselves. So when Paul speaks of focusing on yourself to give attention to yourself when he's talking to his elders he doesn't mean to feed your ego. He doesn't mean to prioritize yourself. He's saying you need to regularly check and make sure that you're still quote serving the Lord with all humility unquote like he, that's what he says in verse 19. That's what you got to make sure you're doing. You need to check your slave status. Are you still a slave? Because if you're not, you should be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's why the New American Standard Bible, which I have, translates pay attention as guard. Because there is a guarding aspect of this. You're paying attention to yourself to protect yourself from these problems. And you're protecting the flock from outside influences that would harm them. So I think that's a, a fair way to do that. It's a heart check. That's what he's inviting them to do regularly, have a heart check. So you're focusing on yourself to make sure you are still who you're supposed to be and you're doing what you were called to do. You can see Paul encourage Timothy to do this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's a section I'm going to read now. I'm going to start reading lots of stuff. Listen to how Paul speaks to a young pastor. So he's writing to Timothy 1 Timothy four, seven. he says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men Especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do you catch all that? Discipline yourself. Labor and strive. Give attention. Do not neglect. Take pains. Be absorbed. Pay close attention. Persevere. That's a lot. Shepherds cannot float along or be pulled along. They have to aggressively pursue being the right kind of man The second part of verse 28 he says be on guard for all the flock. So now let's talk about how the elder is to focus on the flock. He himself is solid in his doctrine. He's walking the walk. He remembers that he's a slave of Jesus. Now he's got to protect the church. He's got to protect the church. What is the danger to the church? Well he's specifically concerned about false teachers. Bad doctrine or people leading people astray. So this idea is advanced further in verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And verse 30, from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So there's two things to watch out for. The savage wolves, of, of course, wolves hunt. Sometimes they hunt in packs, right? They come looking. But Paul also seems to include those who are going to come from the inside. People are going to come from outside in and people are going to be raised up inside that are going to be problems as well and they have to keep an eye on all of that. A shepherd a shepherd does not stand idly by while the wolves come in and start devouring the flock. He has to get out there and risk his life and defend the flock. That's his job. He rescues them. He drives off the wolves. That's what shepherds are for. Let me, let me ask you a question like this. Think of it in your personal life. Do you feel like Satan wants to mess with you? Ever feel that way? Satan's kind of after you. He wants to tempt you. He's working on you. Causing you to trip. Tempting you into sin. Something that might wreck your relationships in your life. Destroy your witness or... Set you off on some weird path or wrong beliefs. You ever been lured by some kind of weird people or something kind of went a certain way for a little while and I uh, realized later hey, that was wrong, you and know, you kind of correct yourself and all. You think he wants to do that to you? How much more does he want to do that to an entire church of people or a whole denomination of churches or a network of churches? How much more? Does he want to destroy that because he can hit so many more people by bringing the whole movement off course. That's where his energy goes. He is after you but he's way more after this church or any church or any group of churches to pull them off the path. So I want you to take a stroll now through the church of Jesus Christ in its first 40 years of existence. And we're not talking about persecution. That's a totally separate thing. We're talking about going astray. And I want to read a whole bunch of scriptures (laughs) for you. This is where this is is coming in. Rejecting the word of God for some other idea. So this comes in many forms. Religious syncretism is a really big one. You know what syncretism means? Blending things together. So like um, almost anywhere you go in the world. And it happens here as well. But Christianity when it comes to a place. There's this solid church hopefully being planted, but somebody on the periphery is going to take Christian ideas and blend them with whatever the current culture believes and so you have religion, if you go to Haiti if you go to Haiti everything's got Jesus all over it, right Patty? (laughs) Every cab, everything's, and at the same time they're going to the witch doctors. So it's a weird blend of Christianity and paganism, the kind of paganism that was there before Christianity came or African religion and um, it's just a totally twisted, corrupted thing. And to be a faithful, Bible-based, God-honoring church in Haiti is really a challenge. It's really difficult. And that's true in many, many cultures. It was true in, in the first century as well. So religious syncretism, human philosophy, people tried to blend Christianity. Paul and Plato, let's put them together. So we'll interpret Christianity through the philosophy of Plato or Aristotle or something like that. That happened early on. And then of course there's vanity and ego and there's rebellion against divine authority. And the love of sensuality is another big one because pagans were, their worship was so much um, part of sensuality. And their religions promoted licentiousness. So walk with me here. We, we, We talked last week about Paul had to deal with false apostles in Corinth individuals he described as servants of Satan who disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. Agents of Satan who disguised themselves as servants of righteousness in a church that he planted in Greece. They're there. That's why he's writing 2nd Corinthians. At the same time there's a cult of Jews who professed to follow Christ who were just trying to destroy the gospel of grace in Galatia where Paul had planted churches. That was going on too at the same time. So we're gonna take this stroll um, through a period that's a little bit later than this moment when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. Just 8 or 10 years or more later and and even a couple decades later. So I'm just gonna start looking at scriptures. First you can look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 if you want. Um, This is Paul's final letter at the end of his life. So he's speaking to the Ephesian elders in about AD 56. So this is later in the mid-60s when Paul is under, he's in prison, put there by the emperor Nero. He's not going to leave that prison. He, the only time he's going to leave that his cell is to go to lay his head on a block and have his head chopped off. That's, so this is his last letter. So here's a man facing death and he takes the time to write Timothy and warn about some false teachers in the church there. It's not a woe is me letter. Verse 11. This is 2 Timothy 2.11. It is a trustworthy statement and then he has this little saying and apparently it was a church poem if you will. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, well he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So he's talking right so far about dealing with false teachers. They love the attention of debating and never ending discussions. It just happens. We, we had a gentleman show up here uh, amongst us during COVID when we were meeting outdoors. Um, early on in this whole mess. And at first I was really excited. He seemed to be really interested in the Bible, but he was kind of different. So, you know, we started to talk and the more we talked, the more I noticed he had some really odd ideas, Mm -hmm. not Orthodox, not conventional Christian ideas. Taylor Weems spent hours with him, talking with him about this stuff. And he wasn't listening. And I spent hours with him. I went to his house to get to know him and find out more about who he was. And I spent hours with him. And it became really evident that he wasn't here to learn anything. He was here to teach us his weird doctrinal ideas. And I asked him if that was the case. And he said, finally he said it. We were sitting right there, in fact. He said, yes, I am here to teach you. He said, I'm not going to mess with your people. I'm going to teach you. So if he can convert me, then he's got all of you, see? That was his plan. Well, I'm open to learning. Anything solid. And it was so obvious this wasn't solid. It was actually kooky. I I told him, you cannot come here with that purpose. You You are not allowed to come here. And so he stopped. But he still kept contacting me, trying to get me on board with this thing. But anyway, Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene We don't do gangrene much anymore because we have things to take care of it if you get taken care of it quickly. But let's use the word cancer. It will spread like a cancer. See false ideas can't be tolerated in the church. We have this solemn obligation to speak the truth. And then he names some names here. Verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. How would you like to be in the Bible as a false teacher? among them? Or Wayne Wilson? No. (laughs) That would be, what a horrific thing that would be. Men who have gone astray from the truth, verse 18, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. That seems to have been an erroneous doctrine that was traveling around because it shows up in Corinth as well apparently. It's this idea that we are resurrected beings now. Like the new birth is the resurrection. That's the resurrection. And so we live in this higher plane of existence and um, some of the Corinthian errors seem connected to that as well but Timothy was in another place so that it was going around and Hymenaeus and, Ale- and uh, Philetus here were promoting that idea. It's really interesting because in 1 Timothy chapter 1 Hymenaeus' his name shows up there as a guy that rejected the truth and suffered shipwreck in regard to his faith. That's exactly what Paul says. That's a quote. He suffered shipwreck in regard to his faith. And here in Second Timothy, Paul's still warning Timothy about Hymenaeus. And Paul says they were excommunicated from the church. Paul says they were, quote, handed over to Satan so they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's First Timothy. So they were excommunicated from the fellowship, put out, and it's still an issue when he writes 2nd Timothy. Cancerous doctrines. So the shepherd will not allow that in the flock. He's got to protect the flock. Let's go to Jude. That's that little book in the back of the Bible right before Revelation. Jude was very likely Jesus' brother. He calls himself the brother of James, and James was Jesus' brother, so if it's the right James, it's the right Jude, and that's Jesus' brother. He wasn't gonna boast about that. So he says he was going to write one letter but the issues of the day required him to write a different letter than he was planning to write. So verse 3 in Jude 3 there's only one chapter. Beloved while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly contend fight earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there's this great body of truth that came from the apostles. That's what we have in our scripture. And we are to contend earnestly for the truth that's there. Four, verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And deny our only master and Lord. Jesus Christ. So he wanted to write about salvation. But instead he was to warn them. About licentious individuals. Creeping into the church. Licentious people. Those are people that have cast off moral restraints. They indulge their lusts. That's what they're all about. Well that's been happening in American churches. For several decades now. And never has it been more strong than it is today. They literally celebrate sin. They, they delight in perversion and whatever else comes along. They approve of it, of course, in the name of inclusion and acceptance. That's, that's our words, right? They abuse those words to affirm licentious corruption and sin. Recently, uh, very recently, a pastor of a progressive Christian church, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks, uh, in San Diego. He spoke directly to the polyamorous members of his congregation. You know what polyamorous means? It means you're having intimate relationships with more than one person, or you're in a a thruple, or whatever those kind of weird uh, ideas are right now. But that's what technically it means, a romantic relationship with more than one person at the same time. A very famous actor and his wife just came out and said that that's that's how we're going to live now. We were committing adultery, but now we're just going to be honest. And it's really a deeper kind of love to have open relationships with whoever we want and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that's so Hollywood. That's very Hollywood. Hollywood's trying to sell us all of that too. But that's polyamory. Anyway, here's what the pastor said. This is a quote. For those who are in an open or polyamorous relationship here this morning who might be squirming because this is an uncomfortable question to hear in church sometimes. I want you to hear me loud and clear as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your relationships are holy. They are beautiful and they are welcomed and celebrated in this space. That's just the newest thing from this guy. He's been waving a rainbow flag for quite a while, but uh, this is his newest permutation of his corruption. He doesn't believe Jesus died for our sins either. That's an old idea. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think that God requires holiness from people. But he wears a collar, you know? The purple shirt and the collar, the priest collar thing. Jude says they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Then verse 12 these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Love feasts is the communion service in the early church. They always had a big potluck. That's where Baptist potlucks come from. Um, What's a hidden reef? It's one a a guy steering his ship can't see. and So he's sailing along and then he hits it and it rips the bottom out of his ship and he sinks. That's what a hidden reef is. That's what these guys are. They are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude needs to be a poet laureate. I mean that's beautiful stuff, but it's incredibly awesome and terrifying. But what a great writer. Peter has a similar message. In fact, Jude reads like he was going to write this letter and he decided to write this other letter about this licentiousness and he's basically had read Second Peter chapter 2 and he's really kind of regurgitating a lot of the elements in Second Peter so Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1 Peter warns his readers false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves And then he describes something that has overwhelmed so many churches. Churchmen in the last hundred years, and this started over a hundred years ago, I'll talk about this in a couple weeks too, but churchmen, denominations, seminaries denying, denying the divinity of Jesus. He was just a good man. Denying the virgin birth of Jesus, denying the atonement of Jesus for our sins, denying that Jesus is coming to reign someday rejecting all of that doctrine. I was raised in a church with a pastor that rejected all of those truths. That was over a hundred years ago that started in American Christianity, but at that time they pretty much they pretty much held on to Christian morality and that's why people were kind of duped by it because everybody's morals were sort of the same. But that doesn't work because once you let go of Christ the moral foundation is gone and it and it crumbles really quickly because you start identifying with whatever the culture is doing which is exactly what's happening in all those denominations and those churches and, it, and, and as weird it get, as it gets and the weirder it gets and the more perverse it gets they go right along they have to how can they alienate people they've lost everything Human nature rebels against all of divine authority. And if you're trying to destroy gender and what that means and how God created things and all of that, you'll do it to be part of the current thing. So when the sexual revolution hit 60s, 50s, and 60s, that, those churches caved totally. They, at first they held to those morals because that was, that was what every right-thinking person believed. But as soon as that hit, they started to, they started to cave. So Peter knew that was going to happen. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them. The way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed. They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago. Is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. So many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is the center. Of 21st century morality. Everything has to succumb to that. Even killing children in the womb has to succumb to your desire to express yourself sexually. Let's walk on a little farther. This is all in the first century. This is what the church was dealing with in the first century. It's not new. So there's a a cult in the first century called Gnosticism. It was, it really started when the apostles were alive but it really expanded after they were gone and became actually a, a threat to Christianity. There's these famous gospels. If you go to a bookstore like in the religion section and they say the hidden secret gospels of Jesus. Anything like that, those kind of weird titles. They're Gnostic Gospels. So they, they took Bible character names like Thomas and Peter and stuck them on there. You know they're not the four gospels. They're all these things. And of course modern people say, well those might be the real God. How do you know they're not the real guy? Well we know because they're written much later, beyond the apostle's lifetime. But um, Gnostic means knowledge. And they believed in salvation through secret knowledge. So if you read the Gospel of Thomas, it isn't anything like the Gospels we have. It's weird sayings that they put in the mouth of Jesus. There's no story. There's no events. It's just weird sayings. They're bizarre can't even understand what they're saying but mystics love that stuff you know it's like oh yeah it's so not understandable it must be deep so let's think about it a lot those kind of things but one of the main overarching ideas um, of Gnosticism there's a lot of schools of Gnosticism but probably the main overarching idea is that the material world is bad created by an evil God and that's the God of the Old Testament He's, he's a monster. And he created this horrible world. To imprison our souls. So spirit is good. Flesh is evil. Secret knowledge. If you have it. Will free you from the flesh. So you can return to the great oneness. Or whatever. But. What do you think a Gnostic would make of John's gospel. Where at the very beginning. He says. The, talks about the word. Being with God. The word was God. The word became. Flesh and dwelt among us. How do you think a Gnostic would feel about that? <laughs> that? That the ineffable God become flesh? What a horrible idea. They hated that. It was abhorrent to them. So, two apostles in the New Testament address Gnosticism in a very early form. And uh, it really kind of came along later in the first century and especially in the second century. But, John is very aware of one of the key ideas there so 1st John chapter 4 verse 1 beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world spirits is kind of a is shorthand phrase Paul uses it in Corinthians this way it's kind of a shorthand word for gift, people with spiritual gifts they're, they're exercising their spiritual gifts. So these are people that are claiming to be the, have the gift of prophecy. They're prophets. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. Verse 4. You are from God little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's one of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible. (laughs) They are from the world therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So that's what we're talking about. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And it already in John's time an early form of this was circulating that Christ did not come in the flesh. He's not God come in the flesh because God would never do that. So shepherds have to protect the great truth that the word of God the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have to protect that. And John wrote that so he's writing he's writing this about these false prophets that are coming and saying these kinds of things. So in the second century Gnosticism really exploded. It became like I said a real threat. There were lots of versions of it. The earlier versions of it supported celibacy So every Gnostic faithful believer had to be a celibate person. Which is pretty hard for people. How popular do you think that was? Well they really tried to do that these certain schools. Why celibacy? Why would they push that? Because the flesh is evil right? So you cannot indulge the desires of the flesh. Later forms of Gnosticism in the second century said you know the flesh doesn't matter. It's evil. Our bodies are corrupt anyway, we're, gonna, we're escaping them, so do whatever you want with your body. Oh, that was popular. That kind of Gnosticism cut on. That was much, much more popular. But here we've got this sort of earlier version. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul also, now Paul is actually not dealing with it as much in his time, but he's prophesying that it's going to come. Here's a real prophet telling the church that this is coming down the pike. 1 Timothy 4 is not a prophecy of the end times. Some people think it is. It's not. It's a prophecy of the post-apostolic era. He doesn't say there's, there's a word for the end times, eschatos, the last times. He doesn't use that word here. He uses a different word, the latter in latter times. In other words, this is coming down the pike. So verse 1, First Timothy four, 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says, so the Holy Spirit is witnessing to Paul that this is true. In latter times, soon Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage. There's the celibacy part. What an odd thing that that would become, but that's totally consistent with the Gnostic idea. And advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by the means of the word of God. We measure everything we do by the word of God. And prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Sorry old women that sometimes you go with (laughs) the... On the other hand he says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So I'm reading all of this so you can just see how much the New Testament addresses what Paul is talking about to the Ephesian elders. All of this stuff is already out there. And they've got to protect the flock. There are wolves that are out there waiting to gobble up believers, gobble up churches, gobble up whole Christian movements. And only the shepherds stand in the way of that happening. The elders of the church. It happened then. It's happened ever since then. It happens now. That's why theology matters. Christian teaching matters. Personal holiness matters. If it didn't matter, Satan wouldn't send wolves against the church. But he does do that. He doesn't want people reconciled to God. He, no glory should go to God. That's what Satan thinks. No glory should go to God. So he's trying to prevent that. He will do whatever he can. Whatever he can think of to confuse people. Or draw them onto some other path. And he doesn't mind using the name of Jesus to do that. As long as it's not the real one. It can be a Gnostic Jesus. Jesus the holder of secrets to free your soul from the flesh. That could be that Jesus. He's all for that. Well we're out of time. I want to develop Paul's thought more here in Acts 20 verse 30. Um, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And that really is the biggest problem so I want to look at that as we experience it in the contemporary church. But next week is October 31st on Sunday you know what October 31st is on Sunday? Reformation Day. Reformation Day. That's right. It's the October 31st. You thought it was going to say Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> October 31st is the is the day that Martin Luther went up to the door at Wittenberg and nailed the 95 theses on there. So next Sunday I want to tell you the Martin Luther story, and it really relates to this because the 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 wolves had been in the church for generations before Martin Luther came along. So. Um, it really relates to this whole idea here. And then the week after that, we'll take on Acts 20 verse 30 and talk about the current scene, how these things can rise within the church, okay? That's, our, that's my plan, all right? So we'll, we'll do that. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience. Lord, how you protected the early church in a sea of trouble is a wonder, but it's not a mystery because you appointed shepherds to tend and guard your flock and you chose them and if they read your word they know they were challenged to be faithful may we prove faithful to you in all humility and do exactly what you want us to do may we always serve you not ourselves may we serve you above even each other But serving each other in the truth is what we're called to do by proclaiming the truth to one another and that we will do. All this we ask in the name of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Amen.